First Peter um, 3, 18 through 25 is where we'll be, page 1016 in the Bible. And, I mean, in your um, pew Bible, that is. And it's always good to have a Bible in front of you. And I'm happy to try to share this message this morning with you for Pastor Bob. I say try because a few years back my voice somehow became damaged. And sometimes it does strange and tricky things. Sometimes it just gets hoarse. Other times it just does something funny. So it feels fairly strong this morning, but if something goes haywire, you realize it's not me, it's the voice. But I'm happy also to share this message for Pastor Bob, because some say that this is um, October is Pastor Appreciation Month. And he's been working this past week and many months prior but this past week on completing his dissertation for his Doctor of Ministry degree. And so one way you can appreciate your pastor would be in these last days of that preparation and getting ready to turn it in to pray for him. And Pastor Bob, my gift of appreciation to you this morning is to try to present this message. I'm happy to do so. So you have come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 25. In a moment I'm going to read that, but I'd like to back up and like to read verse 17, first of all, 1 Peter 3, 17. And then I'd like to read the first verse of chapter 4, verse 1 that is, because I want you to see something. Now, of course, verse 17 is from last week's message, and verse 1 of chapter 4 will be from next week's message. And by the way, I think the next week's message is just as hard a passage as this week's message may happen to be because that's the one where it talks about um, praying for the dead and so on. So come next week and find out what that means. But if we read, I want you to see something very interesting about these verses. I'm going to read from 17 right over to verse 1 and notice something. It says, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Skip to verse 1 of chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The interesting thing is that the passage that we're going to be talking about this morning, in a sense, it really isn't needed. Oh, yes, it is. The thing is, the flow of the argument of the book goes right on without it, but then Peter says what he says in this passage that we're looking at today. It's as if his mind is thinking about one thing, but then comes to his mind what we're going to be talking about right now, and he thinks this also, and he says this is important to say. It's kind of like an insert. Another thing I'd like to ask you to notice is, well, I've preached various passages in the book of First Peter a number of times in my pastoral career. And I've always taken it in kind of a certain way. I've always taken it to be things that are being said to people who, leave, who live kind of hard lives. Or what I'm talking about is the times that we face hardship in our lives, and all of us do. health issues, disasters, financial setbacks, hard things happening all the time, things aren't going well with family, with the kids, the parents, conflicts. We face hardship. We need to take that seriously, and this book speaks to that. And so that's why I've almost always looked at this. Up until recently, and we realize, thanks to the messages we've been hearing, and thanks, I guess you could say, to the news that we watch and the world events that we become aware of every day, that this book is speaking especially to a different kind of hardship. That which I'm choosing to call this morning by the term hostility. Here we are, we live in the United States of America. We live in the Western world where hostility has not been a big part of our lives. That's why whenever I preach this book in times past, 
going back into the 19, late 1960s even, I always talked about it in terms of just plain everyday hardship, but not so much in terms of real hostility. Oh yeah, every now and then somebody didn't like me for being a follower of Jesus, but nothing too hostile. But now we're coming upon to some new days. And do you sense it? Not so much right here in the United States, but it is coming. Right now what we have is we have representative ones of us, I mean in the body of Christ at large in the nation, who are undergoing hostile attack for nothing more than for belonging to Jesus. But this book applies not only to us who live in USA, but also to those who live in all other places in the world who follow Jesus. Where some of the most hostile and hard things happen, are happening, that causes us, I wonder, how can we watch the news and listen and hear these stories these days without literally almost coming to tears over the things that our other brothers and sisters in so many places are facing. And it would seem that we're perhaps on a trend line that's coming here also. So you see that, as we have been learning, is the context of the book. How do we live? When you read this book, and read it completely through sometimes, put it in the context of praying for other people in those places, and think about what will it be like for you. And the younger you are, the more likely it will be that you will be facing some of these very very difficult hostilities. Now as we move then to the paragraph 318 through 22, I'd like to ask you to think three different words. The first word is the word atonement. The second word is the word hostility. The third word is the word identification. The word atonement, now we could use the word gospel, we could use the word salvation, because verse 18 is one of the more complete, succinct, short passages in Scripture that gives us the entire atonement. Actually, verse 18 and verse 22. Atonement. But let me put it a little bit differently. The word atonement has to do with how it can be that we become at one with God. Now, you know, something kind of funny happened when I first began attending Sunday school. I was in the eighth grade and I had just come to know the Lord as my Savior. I was not raised in a Christian home, though I was raised in a good home. I was raised in a, what you might call a nominal Christian home, but church was not a real big deal to my folks, so it was no deal at all to me. But then I came to Christ, and I remember sitting in my eighth grade Sunday school class, and my Sunday school teacher teaching about the word atonement and saying that atonement means how it is that we become at one with God. And then later on, I began to read that that idea is kind of a silly idea, that that's not really what the word atone means at all. It's a verb, and it has to do with how Christ died for our sin, what we've sung about this morning. And so the whole idea of atonement being at one with God was kind of a little bit downplayed, mocked almost. But then I read something else interesting in just recent times, that in fact the word atone was a word that was brought into the English language, or some evidence it was brought in by William Tyndale, translating the Bible into English, and needed a word to represent its concept of becoming at one with God. And so he devised the word, sort of coined the word, at one. Which, of course, if you say it differently, it's a tone. But that's exactly what it means. It's how we become at one with God. Keep that word in mind. The other word I need to ask you to think about is the word hostility. But we could. There's, there's two sides to the word hostility. 
there's the one side, and, and that's what comes down upon you, upon us, if you are placed under a very hard circumstance, I mean losing life, limb, job, whatever, for simply following Jesus. So we're calling that hostility. On the other side is judgment, though. When God is doing something, that's called judgment. What this passage talks about here, we're going to read it, is the judgment of Noah. On the one side, we had what happened during the worldwide flood. On the other side, we had those people who were hostile, so hostile and rejecting against God that they refused any opportunity to become one with him. And the third word I'd like to ask you to think about is the word identification. Or we could use the word baptism, but the point of baptism is you identify with Christ. Put it all together. We could say right from this passage, we'll soon read it, the rest of it. One's brought to God. No, let's put it this way. At one's. At one's brought to God. Identify deeply with Jesus in a hostile society. Now we come to verse 18. Let me read it. I'm going to read verse 18 and 22. Now here's Peter again. Remember I said you almost, he jumped from... 317 to 41, and I read that. But now he, you could take out verse um, 19 and 20 and 21, most of it, and just read verse 18 and, 18 and 22, and you have the atonement, all of it. Listen, here's what it says Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. At one, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Down to verse, into verse 21. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. You need to memorize that passage right there. I urge, I urge it upon you. Because right here is one of the simplest, most simply put, one of the most succinct passages with a complete atonement in it. How we can be brought to God. Christ also suffered hostility. He suffered hostility once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I, 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 I wonder if sometimes people sort of get the idea that we can just go to God. No, you can't. You have to be brought to God. And the only one who can bring is Jesus. In order to be brought to God, one won't want to be brought to God if one thinks one is okay. There needs to be some sense of guilt, some sense of shame, some sense of fear of a holy God, and that there's no way that I can reach him. I cannot take care of my own guilt, atone for it, to be at one with God. I cannot take care of my own shame. I must recognize God as a fearsome God. Yes, to the believer, he's kind, and we can approach him as a father. But to the one outside of Christ, that person is under judgment. We can't just go and say, God, sorry, I know you forgive anything. I don't know how, and I don't know why, but sorry. Now, it doesn't work quite that way. Look once again at what the word at one, or atonement means here in verse 18, and in order to get at it, I'd like to just briefly explain an error of looking at the atonement and then the elements of it. I mean, they're so very simple, but all of them are needful, and this is what you need to memorize. But first, there are some errors. In fact, we could talk for quite a long time on a whole variety of errors, because you see what the what the evil one is doing always is he's trying to confuse the situation. 
so that people don't fully understand what the atonement is. And so these days, the major, a major way that confusion is being introduced into the thinking of, well, Americans in particular, is through an era that is now referred to by many as MTD. You may have heard of that, but I'll bet you many of you haven't. Anybody ever heard of that? MTD? Now let me give you the full phrase. It stands for Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Now we learn about all kinds of worldviews and all kinds of religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, yada, 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 all different kinds of sects and cults and everything and branches of Christendom and all of that and more. But this MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, is what's become prevalent in the pop culture thinking of our society among people who know anything about Christianity. And there's five tenets to it, five beliefs involved in it. And the way these were discovered was by surveying people just like us and finding out what do you really believe. And here are the things, there is a God. So far, so good. God wants us to be nice and tolerant. Could talk about that for a while, but stew on it. I think you can figure it out. Thirdly, the major purpose in life is to be happy. Fourth idea of this is God exists, but he really is not requiring or interested in my being part of, of, us, have, of us being tight together. Let's put it that way. Unless, of course, I need him, and then he's supposed to come running, and if I'm in a hard spot, he'll get me out of it. But other than that, there's no real reason for me to be too tight with God. I mean, I wouldn't want to be a fanatic or anything like that. And the fifth tenet of this moralistic therapeutic deism is that nice people go to heaven when they die. I'm nice, that means me. And you hear this all the time. If you were to remember those five tenets and watch for them, you'll see them all the time. Um, there was an interesting article just a week ago, a couple of weeks ago maybe, in World Magazine. I recommend you read the magazine. And I, I don't want to put another person on the spot but it's a public story, and so I think it's okay in this case. A story about a man, a grown man, probably not a millennial, a little bit older, but what we're talking about here, this moralistic theor therapeutic deism, is all about being a millennial because those who have approached, who've just come into their adulthood and a little bit older believe in moralistic, moralistic therapeutic deism. That's the religion of that demographic. This man's name is Bart Campolo. Anybody ever heard of him? Maybe you've even read the article. He's the son of Tony Campolo, who is a Christian. Well, he's a Christian on a different side of the fence from most of us. He's what's referred to as a progressive Christian, okay? He goes along with certain ideas that we would find abhorrent concerning marriage and concerning life and other things, okay? But his son, of course, was raised in this kind of a Christian home, and somehow or another, Bart, written in quite a number of books, some of which you would probably find useful. Several books, anyway. But um, Bart, according to this interview in World Magazine, just nothing but a likable chap, raised in a Christian home until one day in his 30s. And he wakes up and he decides, there is no God. And there is no heaven. We just end. So what we've done is we've chopped the ends off, God and heaven, and we're stuck right in here in the middle. We've got still these three tenets. See, it's a variation of moralistic therapeutic deism. Bart, raised in a Christian home where he should have known these things, has read the Bible, never been subjected to 1 Peter 3.15, which you had discussed here last Sunday, be ready always to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Well, he looked at the suffering things in the world as we almost do, these hostilities, these harsh things that, that I already mentioned. 
and thought, there can't be a God. God wouldn't allow that, so there is no God. We just end when we die. But still, I'm going to be a nice person, which I suppose he is. I know there's no reason, reason to get too greatly involved with God. And also, um, God wants me to be happy. And so he is in the process of becoming a chaplain to atheists at Berkeley University. Isn't that interesting? There's one more version of this. There's one more version of this I just want to mention. Because that's the, po that's the um, millennials version of MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. But you see, it takes on different shifts and different sizes as it um, evolves. As different people think about it differently. And I began picking up on this several years ago. And it's really important to understand these things. And here's why. Because sometimes, you know, we stand and we teach. The preacher teaches, the Sunday school teacher teaches, the various messages that we hear, and we think that people are hearing what we're saying, but people are not always hearing what we're saying. Instead, they're filtering things, and they're hearing what pop culture is teaching. So if you're a post-millennial, what is becoming more and more prominent among post I'm not talking about eschatology, understand. I'm talking about the demographic, a post-millennialist, one who is not a millennialist, but one who is, well, teenagers. Now, ones who haven't yet reached adulthood. This is the thinking. God thinks I'm a cool person and wants me in his heaven because I would be a contribution. I would make, don't laugh. This is what many are hearing. I would be a contribution. He's going to have this great party someday, and he wants me to come because he knows that I would be a contribution to it. And it's heard all the time because what we tell people continually is, God loves you. And that guy translates into, I am such an amazing person. I am amazing. That's why God loves me, and he wants me in his heaven. That's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now compare what the elements are of atonement right here. We can do it quickly. Christ suffered. Hostility, the other side of that is judgment. He suffered the judgment. Once. It is finished. It is paid in full. Four sins, your guilt, your shame, your fear, the righteous for the unrighteous, Jesus for me, my substitute instead of me, in my place, as we sung in two songs this morning, reiterating, reinforcing that. That he might bring us to God. You can't just go to God. Jesus has to bring. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. At one. Atonement. At one's brought... To God, identify deeply with him and proclaim him to a hostile society. And that's what we find talked about now in verse 19 and 20 by Peter. And here we are again. You see, this is placed in the middle. It's as if Peter is saying one thing and then he thinks, oh, let me give you an analogy. Let me give you a comparison. And so he says this, in which, so he says, Christ suffered for once for sins, the, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which. And then he says two things before going back to the resurrection. So I think of this as kind of an in which is kind of like a sandwich. You've got the atonement on one side and on the other side. 
and you got two fillings in here, peanut butter and jelly or ham and cheese or whatever you like. Well, okay, we come to the first one right here, and this is this whole idea, whole idea of hostility in which Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. The word is too mild. I mean, it's the correct word, but you've got to hear a stronger word in there because they formerly were so ultimately completely hostile and rejecting and pushing against God and all he stands for and all who would follow him. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Well, there's two things. Why is this here? It didn't need to be here. He could have just gone right on with talking about the atonement. So why is this here and what's it mean? Well, I think that why it's here is best expressed in the sense that there are four reasons why this is here. Of course, the immediate thing is that Peter, remember, is talking to these people and basically in Turkey, but throughout the empire, throughout Christendom of his time that he was still alive in. He's talking to them and they are undergoing not just hardness of life, that, yes, all the things that we face with health and crises, but this hostility, this hostility such that they were being martyred, they were giving their lives, and it would happen, continue to happen for a long time, then there might be a space and it would happen again and again and again. So you see, he was talking to those people then, and it might well be that Peter was thinking the same as we're supposed to think right now, you can believe it, that we anticipate the return of the Lord any day. Maybe before any more hostility happens because things look so bad. So he's talking about people who are coming to people who are going to be later on, right on down to us. But what he's really talking about, the analogy is when he points everybody back to the time of hostility, that's people's rejection of God in the time of coming up to Noah's flood and finally judged by God, that time of hostility. He says, remember how it was back then? Total, total, complete hostility, such that only eight got on the ark. And the other time that he's referring to, no doubt, this is prophetic. It's looking ahead to, as Jesus said, as it was in the times of Noah, so it will be, in, at the time when Jesus comes again. And so we have four different time frames, so to speak, in view here. That's why it's here, but now what does it mean? It says Jesus went and proclaimed. In order to understand what it means, you've just got to take this word proclaim. Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Have I read the passage yet? Let me read it again. In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who in the world are the spirits in prison? Because they formerly did not obey. They were hostile. They rejected. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What's the word proclaimed? Once we understand the word proclaimed, and just take it the way it is, don't try and make it into something else, then you get a clue as to what the passage means. The word proclaims means to set forth the claims of Christ in this case. And in some translations it uses the word preached. That's an okay word, but a lot of times people get the word preach, misunderstand it, because we think, okay, if I teach, I talk in soft tones, like I'm trying to do for my sake of my voice, and I stand still. And the person will say that he's a good teacher, because he explained the passage, but if I preach, I'll gesticulate, and I'll move around a lot more, and I'll, and I'll shout, and I'll do stuff like that, and that's preaching. No, 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 no. That's not the biblical idea here. The biblical idea is the word preach means to set forth the claims of Christ in this case. And the word is used again in the next chapter. And not only that, but there's three words that are used in verse 15. Um, just last week we heard about this word. We have the word give a reason, always give reasons. And here we have the word set forth the claims. And thirdly, we have the word in the next chapter, I guess it is is you'll come upon the word evangelize, share the good news. So that's what's happening here. Jesus, Jesus, is sharing the good news. 
in the times of Noah, through Noah. It says in the other places in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, that Jesus spoke through Noah, a righteous man, to the people who were rejecting and who were hostile to him. That's what Jesus was doing. So it says he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's the confusing part of this passage. That's why Pastor Bob is saying this is the, this is the part of the book of First Peter which can get a little bit complicated. And the reason it gets a little bit complicated is because various good scholars have come up with at least three major, three major um, ideas about what this means. <laughs> and let me not come across as arrogant. But two of those ideas obviously have got to be probably wrong. Well, let me explain. Um, one idea is that what they, they think, well, okay, Jesus did this proclaiming between the, day, the time of his um, death and his resurrection, between when he died and Sunday morning. And so he went to hell and he did that. Well, we know that that won't work because the Bible is very clear that there is nothing of this second chance business. It's given unto man once to die and then comes the judgment. So without going into a lot of detail, we can dismiss the idea that Jesus did not go to hell and proclaim the gospel to people who were already lost. So we can dismiss that, but some people argue for it. The second um, idea that's been... Um, suggested is that Jesus went somewhere and proclaimed whatever that means you know what it means because I just told you but proclaimed whatever that means to fallen angels that they might well that they might what? Now that's an issue the idea is that Back in the times before Noah, long before, certain angels cohabited with human females, and that was an especially egregious thing to do. And um, these are the ones that he is going and speaking to now. Well, there are some little difficulties. One is that angels can't cohabit with humans. Oh, of course. Um, those who are filled with evil, the evil one, evil possessed ones, they can co evil possessed humans can cohabit with other humans, and that happens all the time, every day, even now. The second thing, oh, the problem with okay, Jesus proclaimed to the angels is, angels are not benefactors of the atonement. People are, you are, we are, people are. Another thing, of course, is that it says in the text that they drowned. It's kind of hard to see angels drowning. So that takes us back. Well, it's got to be being spoken to people. What people? Well, the people in Noah's day. Jesus went in the spirit. That's what it says right here, really. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. And what happened in Noah's day? Rejection. Total rejection. Absolute, not just rejection, but hostility. You know, by the time we get to the day that the flood begins, there's only eight people, Noah and his family, you know. Worldwide flood. You've got to picture this. Worldwide. Not a few dozen people. Millions. Millions. I have no doubt that probably up until the time of the flood, you know, it took 120 years to build the ark, that Noah had help building that ark. He hired people. He didn't do it all by himself. You've seen pictures. You'll be able to go and visit arcs that size. One is being built in um, Kentucky right now, or Indiana, wherever it is, Anderson's in Genesis. You don't build that thing just by yourself with a hammer and saw. And not only that, but probably, I mean, there's no reason to believe that Noah didn't have a lot of help, and Jesus speaking through Noah and through others who are with Noah giving them what would amount to, in that time, the gospel, the good news, proclaiming the claims of Christ, that is, the claims of God upon the generation. 
But as things went along, they became more and more and more hardened. And my guess is that all those people who, any people who may have been with Noah, and there couldn't have been a whole lot, Methuselah certainly, Lamech probably, and children and others and everything, but they died. Why did they die? I don't know. I'm just suggesting this. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us this much. But the hostility was so great that anybody who really believed in God is being martyred. They wouldn't have necessarily used the word back then. But they're being martyred. They're being put to death for following the true God, the living God. That's how intense the hostility was until the entire world that was left was either killed by those who were so hostile. Hey, you can't understand that. Well, yes, you can. Watch the news. Picture yourself. You decide to preach Jesus and you feel called to go to Mecca. Take a soapbox, stand in front of the Kaab, the Kaaba, and preach Jesus. Well, you couldn't because you could never get in there because you're not a Muslim. But suppose you could. How long would you last? I mean, you're nations filled with people that are so hostile and rejecting of Christ, the Savior. Is it not possible to imagine how it was in Noah's time compared to now and what we may be heading for more and more as in the days of Noah? So it will be when the Son of Man comes again. Do you sense the hostility? Which leads us to this phrase. He said he went to preach. Jesus in the Spirit went to preach through Noah to the spirits. That's just people. And the word Peter even uses the word spirits for people in another place, in a couple of other places actually in his writings. That's just people. But what's this mean in prison? So that's what's caused a lot of confusion to those who would interpret this passage with these other two ideas. And so what I'm trying to explain to you right now, but really, if you think about it, there's two ways that a, people could be, a person can be in prison. And by the way, the word in the Greek, if you have, any of you have your Greek New Testament with you, Greek New Testament is open before you, you'll see this. The, the word is simple, in phulake. Okay, it can mean in prison. And it probably does. And so in what sense would those spirits, those people, be in prison? Because they're, the answer is because they're possessed of this evil to such an extent that literally they're in the bondage of sin. We, we talk about that. It's common in the New Testament to talk about being in the bondage of sin. And once you come to Christ, you're released from the bondage of sin, do you see? You're released from the bondage of sin. But those people were not released. They became more and more and more hardened and hostile, as is the case with millions, billions today. We must weep. We must cry. How do we get the message to these? Jesus, in and through Noah and others who helped in that day, God's patience for 120 years and hearts were mostly hardened and hardened and hardened, adopting all kinds of religions and views except for the one which is the one being proclaimed and the one which is the truth. So, spirits in prison. But there's another possibility. You know, you can be in prison because you're being held captive, or you could be, it could be that the guards are protecting you. And it happens that the word is the same. The Greek word here is used for in prison or also it means under watch. Like, for example, a city. There are certain watches on a city wall in old times. There is a wall around the city. And the guards stand guard not to keep the people in, but to keep the bad guys out. So prison on, in one hand with its guards is to keep the bad guys in, and the other way is to keep the bad guys out. So now imagine this. You've got the society of Noah coming up to the time of the flood, and these people are becoming worse and worse and more and more hardened. What's to dis, what's to, what is to prevent them from destroying Noah and that ark. 
as more and more probably ones are being killed off because they follow God. The only thing to prevent them is because they were under guard, the spirits under guard, the spirits in prison. It's prophetic. Watch the news. Not only there, but little tiny Israel surrounded. And if you're comparing what's happening in the news with the things that are being described in the Bible and the prophetic things that are there, you've got to see that this little tiny place called Israel is somehow not in prison, but under guard. It's the same word. So we could say, we could translate it this way. Jesus in the spirit, in Noah and others, went and proclaimed to evil spirit indwelt people of Noah's time while holding them under watch lest they destroy Noah and that ark, God patiently giving, waiting and giving more time for any to reconsider until the ark was complete and they refused and the worldwide judgment came. Hostility on one side will finally lead to judgment by God on the other side. And what do we do as we face that hostility? One's brought to God at once. One's at one with God, identified deeply with Christ and proclaim him to a hostile culture. Which brings us to the very last little bit of this. He says, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. See, this is the second piece of meat in this in which. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal. Could go either direction, as this is another two-sided word. On one side, it's an appeal or a request. On the other side, it's a pledge. How do you appeal to God to be brought to him? Only through Jesus. You request to be brought to God by Jesus. If he doesn't bring you, you don't go. That's as simple as I can put it. You have to become at one with God. But on the other side of that comes loyalty because you enter into a relationship. And that loyalty has to do with your identification, your identity in Christ. You become a Christian. You pull out your driver's license and you look at it and you think, the picture ain't too great. But it identifies me as a resident of the state of Washington allowed to drive a motor vehicle. You look at your identity in Christ, it's marked by baptism. It's just a sign. That little certificate that you have called your driver's license, it doesn't qualify you to drive. It just shows that you are qualified to drive because you've passed the test. That's your identification now. Your baptism, when you're, as Pastor Bob was explaining again to the children, being baptized doesn't qualify you for heaven, but it's the sign of it. It's the certificate of it. It shows it. It has to do with it. But notice what he says here. He says, we're not talking about, you see, the removal of flat, the removal of dirt from the flesh. No, we're talking about an appeal or a request or a pledge to God for a good conscience. See, the person who is identified says, I identify with Christ in such a manner. This is what it's supposed to mean. And if it doesn't mean this, then the baptism is just as phony as a false Washington State driver's license card would be. It means I identify with him. I am at one with God through Christ, and I am loyal. I will live for him in the face of hostility, ones brought to God, identify deeply with Christ. Baptism, I'm not talking about having to get baptized. We're talking about what it means, and thus perhaps you will get baptized in water. But when you come to Christ, if you understand it, you identify with him, and that's the basis by which you can be brought to the throne and be at one with God. And then, of course, we realize out of loyalty to him, we have one thing to do, and that is to proclaim him to a hostile culture, an increasingly hostile culture. I'd like to take you back for a moment. You know, for 
in the baptismal water, wherever you're baptized, here or somewhere, you go through the ritual of it, and it's a, it's a sign. And the water is the judgment. Like Pastor Bob was mentioning to the kids this morning, you know, he's saying, hey, we don't, I'm not allowed to hold you under the water. But you realize when you get baptized, the pastor, if he's baptizing you, has a lot of power. Because suppose he did hold you under the water. That's the judgment. That's the flood. But you're not held under the water because you're at one with Christ. Raised to newness of life. That's the picture. You identify with him, and we can explain in lots of other ways. But sooner or later, for many, perhaps not all, but for many, that identification with Christ will be tested against the hostility of society. For some, it might be on a beach in Libya. For some, it might be Sunday afternoon at the shopping mall in Nairobi. Are you a Christian? Go over there. Are you a Muslim? Go over there. Can you say the Shahada? Can you recite the name of Muhammad's mother? Go over there. That's the end. Or come with me just very briefly again back to what we've only read about. Snyder Hall, room 15, October 1st at 10.30 a.m. And I remind you of this, not to take any advantage of the people who were there. Because in a way, I'm telling this, reminding you of this simply as a story. But for them, it's post-traumatic stress disorder. Those who survived. And we must cry and we must pray for those. And so I intend, I won't mention any names, because I intend no way, in no way to take advantage of one of the most horrible things that's happened among mass killings in the United States of America, just south of us in the state of Oregon. But still, the comparisons are so outstanding that they become for us a picture. They tell us something like, for example... The one man, age, we had people from age 18 to 74, 69, 19, in the middle, 35, the hero who survived, nine people, one in a wheelchair, killed, one man shot, he's bleeding, he dies. Before he dies, some way, why? Don't know what was in his mind. He somehow sidles over on top of the girl next to him, the PK, who survived, who was not shot, and bleeds to death on her. Do you see the picture? She's covered in the blood. You're covered in the blood of Jesus. She was saved. He literally stepped over her, thinking she was already dead. He passed over her. And she survived. You're only 18 or 19. And he says, get on the floor. And you're on the floor. And now you know what fear is. I'm talking about ones brought to Christ have to understand something of guilt and shame and fear. But now you know what fear is. And he says, stand up. And the guy, person stands up and is shot. And then he says to you in the orange shirt, stand up. And the previous person was asked, let's say, and I don't know if he asked everybody this question. I don't know if he was targeting. It's not clear. But say he was. And he asks, are you a Christian? 
The person right before you said yes, and that was the end. What would you say? That is identification with Christ. That is when we understand what it means to identify with Christ in reality. Not just in the joyful waters of the new life of the baptismal tank, but in real life when hostility comes to your life. You stand. What would you say? I don't know if it would come to my mind to say it. I pray it might. It would. But also for you. Why not memorize? Christ also suffered hostility once for my sins. Him the righteous for me the unrighteous that he might bring me to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Sometimes we proclaim Christ with our lips. In a hostile society, will you proclaim Christ with your life? One's brought to God, identify deeply with Christ, and proclaim him in life or in death to a hostile culture coming into or under judgment. And Father, here now, I pray that we would understand what it means to be at one with you. I simply ask that you would help us to understand how we are to live with kindness, goodness, and grace, with courage and bravery and loyalty in the face of a growingly hostile culture and have the lips and the life to proclaim you when times are good and when times come to their worst. Through Jesus, amen. As we receive the...